Welcome, everybody, to Way of the Blade, the podcast. I'm your host, Phil Schneider, author of Way of the Blade, 100 of the greatest bloody matches in professional wrestling history, and writer for the Segunda Caeta blog. I am very pleased to be joined by an old buddy of mine, a punk rock icon, a singer from the band Rancid, and a host of his own wrestling podcast, the, the uh, Wrestling Perspective podcast. Uh, uh, Lars Fredrickson. Lars, thanks for coming on, my friend. Oh, so happy to be here, Phil. I'm, I'm, you know, it's so great to kind of have talked to you after all this time and find out you got this book and this is, I mean, this is the coolest book in the world. Yeah, I really appreciate the, the, that. And, you know, I think last time we, we chatted, setting this up, I said, you, you know, when you create something and you certainly know this better than than anyone you have no idea how it's going to be received by anybody you just kind of put it put yourself out there whether it's a you know a book or, or or music and you so well i hope people like it so getting hearing feedback has been the best one of the best parts of this like oh this actually has an audience and people seem to be who get who get their hands on it seem to dig it and uh and that's been really uh, gratifying to well, uh get get like a, a feedback on this because you, you know you never know whether you, what your audience is and whether anybody actually is going to think it's worth their time to to uh to, to read it well i mean just the fact that it's put together in this like chronological order you know what i mean with the dates and the, and so it makes it really easy if you if you want to go back and find the match you know what i mean whether it be youtube or maybe you're you're you know like for me i was i'm an old you know we you know the tape trading thing so i've got like you know fifty thousand dvds <laughs> with just like every single match from every single company but one of the things I love all the illustration in it. It's, you know, it's, it's so cool and well put together. And it actually, when I got it, it sort of, it sort of sparked a brand new love for professional wrestling. And every once in a while, either a performer or something will happen in the world of professional wrestling that, it, that will do that to me, but it hadn't in a long time. And then I picked up your book and I was like, Oh man. And then I just, that's all I've been doing for like the last two weeks is just be consuming myself, like trying to go in the book in order, you know what I mean? And, and then, you know, when we talked about maybe doing this, I was like, okay, this Ricky Morton, Ric Flair match, this will be good. You know, the stuff, right. And that's the match we're talking about today. We're talking about Ric Flair versus Ricky Morton from the great American bash, July 5th, 1986. Uh, It's a match that was, you know, sort of, a lost match right. for a long, long time. I and mean, it was a match that wasn't on, you know, the great American bash commercial tape that you got from the, from the uh, sketchy video store in your neighborhood uh, where you used to get wrestling tapes when you were, you know, growing up, it wasn't part of that. They were always like, they were always next to the porn for some reason. Yeah, it was always next to the porn. That's the thing. You, if you wanted to get, uh, I this conversation, I think with Rob Naylor actually about the exact same thing. If you wanted to get like, Bloop, uh, you know, WWE's uh, uh, bleepers, bloopers, and body slams that you could get at Blockbuster, right? But if yeah. you wanted to get like the I, uh, I hurt, I like to hurt people, oh, like, yeah, to get like the NWA stuff or the yeah. you know, like Lords of the Ring, you had to go to the video store that was you know, had some videos in front, but was mostly porn, like a, the 75%, like all the profits were from porn. Yeah. And you would go, but but they also had some. They also had some of the weirder, more obscure wrestling dates. And you, you know, my dad would, my parents would always be irritated with me because they would, you know, say, "Okay, we'll get you a video." And I'm like, "No, 
we can't go to Blockbuster. We got to go to the place down the street and down in an alley somewhere in Oakland. And you got to go to that. <laughs> that place is where they're going to have the stuff. But this, this match wasn't on one of those tapes, even oh. though there was a Great American Bash. This was something that didn't show up until uh, like a, a WWE DVD, like many yeah, years. Was it the Four Horsemen one? It was the Four Horsemen DVD, maybe like seven or eight years ago. Right, so this right, was right. like one of those, so, you know, which is the book has a ton of these, these sort of hidden matches that sort of showed up, you know, years and years and years after they had them, either on the WWE Network or on, you know, that NWA Classics uh, uh, service, which was around for a little while and then disappeared. And, you know, these, these matches that you didn't even, and then they show up in like beautiful video. I mean, this match looks, looks pristine. It, right? it, looks, and, it looks amazing. Yeah, and it, and it, you know, then you watch it, you're like, oh wow, this you didn't really ever know about this match until like 2014, but it's right. one of the great matches of this era, which is I you know my this was right around the time when I started watching wrestling, 1986. Well, you know what? Let me just say something real fast. This is it's interesting because actually Ric Flair actually pins a guy. <laughs> that's right, and that's how he wins. It's like, it's very, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I seem to remember Ric Flair always getting either counted out, disqualified to keep that championship or going, you know, the time limit. I, 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 I was like, when I watched the match, we watched the match again. I was like, wait, did he just win by pinfall? Yeah, like, he won by pinfall. Whoa. Yeah. So it's, but even though he was cheating, he puts his feet on the ropes, right? And, the, and of course, it's a cage match. You know? Yeah. But, and Tommy Young is like, I mean, who's obviously, you know, that's one of the things that I also wanted to point out just real quickly is how well Tommy Young makes that match. Yeah. As a referee. He's really great. I He's mean, one amazing. Of, one of the, one, I mean, part of, part of this entire production of like mid, you know, these mid eighties, uh, you know, Crockett NWA stuff, which like saying is like the part when, right around when I started wrestling was this. And I mean, just the, my, probably my favorite, certainly my favorite period of wrestling that I was able to, experience as it happened right? right i mean there's obviously some part of other periods of wrestling which i had sort of looked back at and, and i guess i was sort of watching like all japan in like 1994 95 through like videotapes from japanese video stores but like this was on tv and you right. have these like and this was like your peak of peak of rick flair and his most rick flairness you know what I mean? Where he would come on every week and cut the, you know, talk about his, you know, $700, uh, $700 pair of socks and $1,500 uh, shoes and, you but know, $25,000 Rolex. Oh, it was the best, right? It was like, you know. It was, it was like legit, though. I mean, that's the thing about Ric Flair is like he lived his gimmick. It's kind of like Nick Gage, you know, um, right. you know the, the deathmatch guy, you know. It's like he lives his gimmick. He's a bank robber, like crazy dude <laughs> right rick flair is driving around the limousines i mean the, the the background to this to this match is basically is basic i mean it, you know we, we we joked as our as our respective wives helped us set this zoom call up because we're old men about how this guy is this feud is a little misogynistic and it really is the feud is basically rick flair being pissed that ricky morton is side draining his the younger rats you know, like when he goes to the when he goes to the thing, the the, the underage women are right. are looking are are screaming for Ricky Morton, and he's you know talking about older sisters, aunts, and moms, and I think he's a little pissed off about that. So yeah. like you know gets you know it's gets loses it, and 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 you know Ricky Morton breaks his 
sunglasses and like you know it's the uh i'm and sure then, that he gets attacked right and then they like break his nose and they rub it it's really brutal they rub his face against right. the concrete in That's a really right. really really probably one of the more violent angles of the 1980s they right. just they just mangle him well but and, this, you know yeah go ahead which is the what you do i mean look you know you want this guy is side draining the rats you're gonna mess up his pretty face and he did i mean i ricky morton was kind of pretty 86 by like 92 not so much yeah well fair enough but you know one of the things that like i you know you have to look back at why this even happened in the first place because i I believe robert gibson's heard at the time right right and And then magnum ta has just had his car crash and he's the one being groomed to be you know the next guy right yeah so then in then in steps Ricky Morton, who I think, in my in my opinion, not only was uh, a great baby face, probably one of the better. I mean, I, I, they're two dudes at the top of their game at that time. Uh, Ricky Morton being in the tag team world, top of the top top of his his class. Ric Flair, world heavyweight champion. So for me, it's like watching that match. It's two consummate professionals who are at the peak of their career at that time. You know what I mean? And it's like no shit at a good match. Yeah, Morton's incredible. And it and it really feels a little bit like you're viewing what could have been with Ricky Morton, right? Like a different, like uh, you know, the the if if you talk about the the multi physics multiverse theory that every single decision any human makes is a different universe. There's a universe where Ricky Morton was a top babyface singles wrestling superstar his entire time. There was a point where he's He's Ricky Steamboat or he's, you know, maybe Bret Hart or one of these guys who is the top of the, the, the food chain as a sales wrestler. And this was, this was the, the sort of window into that, because but it wasn't long, right? It was maybe a six, five, six month period where he was feuding with Flair in the summer of 86. And for the most part, doesn't really ever have another big singles match run on top. He's got the York Foundation stuff. Oh, five yeah. or six years later and you know run it comes in and out and does some singles wrestling in smoky mountain but you know for the most part is it for before this and after this up until you know you know so right now in St- indiana at some fairgrounds tonight probably is a tag wrestler well, and the, yeah. the greatest ever at it but it's interesting to see what what it would have looked like if ricky morton was instead took that road not traveled well, you know, I, the thing the thing that I've always loved about him was how he he was very it was very easy to relate. He was very relatable. And not only was he relatable, but he was an incredible performer and a, an amazing storyteller. And, I, and I, one of the things I noticed in that match is you can see how heated they are. Right. So Flair comes in in the helicopter. You know what I mean? One and of the. It, Coolest entrances in wrestling history, right? Flair in the helicopter with the with the with the um, you know music from two thousand one. I can never pronounce what that song is called, but I'm not doing it. But that song playing and him coming down out of the helicopter. I mean, un- unbelievable. Dressed impeccably, like with the the robe and the purple and the. I mean, or it's like a, it's almost like a violet or something yeah, like uh, that. Gorgeous but, robe. He must have. He must have. He must have a hundred of them. Yeah, I mean, at least, right? And then yeah. you've got Ricky Morton, who looks like, you know, somebody out of a hair metal band of that era. You know what I mean? Could be Motley Crue, could be, uh, you know, 
Jeff Poison, maybe yeah, something like that. But 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 has that like that that uh, edgy, rough around the edges kind of thing. You know what I mean? But still so likable. And I remember there's that one. There's one point in the match when I think it's Ricky Morton gives Flair a headbutt when he's got the mask on, and you can tell it's kind of getting heated. And and just the, just the psychology of like he's like he I think he headbutts Flair and then Tommy Young steps in. And like says you can't do that or something like that. And Ricky gets down off the ropes and like pushes Tommy or something like that, full like heel move or something. Yeah. And then you can see him before he goes back to play. He goes, "I'm really sorry." Or something like, yeah. you know, you're like he like almost okay. I just did a heel kind of thing to Tommy, but I'm so pissed. But now I'm I gotta apologize because I gotta remember who I am in this story. You right. know, and it's just still a nice Southern boy who's lost his temper. But, right. And this is a I mean, you know. Flair, obviously, especially in this period, I mean, this was, 86 was the last real traveling Flair year where he's working, you know, 50 different promotions all over the, you know, doesn't, you know, Mid-South this week, Memphis this week, Hawaii this week, Kansas City the next week. I think even in my book, I like listed all of the the wrestlers that he wrestled, uh, you know, that year. I mean, like Wendell Cooley, Miguel Perez Jr., The Bullet, Ronnie Garvin, Cousin Jr. I mean, just, you know, like, would travel the world. And so I think you almost have to when you're coming into town. I mean, the flair formula is a match that we certainly know very well. What a flair match kind of – what, and they're different, right? He's going to wrestle Nikita different than he's going to wrestle Ronnie or Dusty. But this kind of match where he's just this just really violent, yeah. brutal – I mean, it's not a flair you see a ton of. Right. No. Usually your heel flair is a guy who's going to, you know, look to take shortcuts, but will spend a lot of time backing off on his knees, wait, you know, like that kind of thing. Uh, you don't usually see flair like taking his, you know, fist and driving it into somebody's broken nose like this, like he's 10 rower, you know, what I mean? it's, 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 a, no, it's, it's pretty insane. And I remember like when the, when they start to do, they do the announcement for like, it's 20 minutes during the match. It was 20 minutes have passed. And I'm just like, wait, 20 minutes have passed? It felt like five. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, th- and I'm just like, whoa. And I, then I had another realization. It's like, these guys could have a match, either one of them, with, with yeah, as they say, a broomstick, and it would be entertaining. You know what I mean? And their styles, <clears throat> both Ricky Mortons and Ric Flair's, they, they could do anything. And you, re- and you see that because, like you said, Flair's so freaking aggressive, like, When's the last time you see that really aggressive flair? Not a chicken shit, right? Yeah, I mean, there's there's the the there's Wahoo matches and there's Garvin matches that are very much him sort of testing his manhood by right. exchanging with these guys, right? right? Like those those Garvin matches are great. Those are two guys just standing in the pocket and like you know trying to trying to knock each other out, like you might see in the, at the end of a boxing match or something right. like that. But that's even a little different than this. I don't really ever remember seeing, and I've God knows I've watched a million Ric Flair matches, ever <laughs> seeing a Ric Flair match that's worked like this, where he's a guy who's looking to like maim someone. Right. I just don't remember seeing it. He, God, he's good at it. It's well, like he, you just imagine him doing this a lot where he's looking, I'm going to take a guy, I'm going to demolish his face. No, there won't be, they're not going to look twice at him in the locker room at the end of this match. Right. right? Well, and then obviously Morton tries to do the same thing. I mean, you know, he aims all those punches right at Flair's giant nose. And he's looking to like, he's looking to give him a, it's both of them are sort of 
get looking for free rhinoplasties on their on their noses in this match. It's it really is crazy. And like watching this for the first time, I remember thinking, "What is this? This is incredible!" And like nothing I've seen really from either guy, even Ricky Morton too. You know, has has fair share of like you know big bloody brawls. I've got a, a rock and rolls versus heavenly bodies in the book as well. But right. this kind of like you know thing, I don't really remember seeing him from him very much either. It really is kind of a, a bit of a unicorn, incredible unicorn match from two guys who I think are mostly known for their sort of, for, you know, formulas, right? The flair formula, the Ricky Morton working as Ricky Morton in a tag match. And this is like, yeah, they could do that, but they could do this too. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing with Flair. I always feel like he always would come out as the cocky kind of pseudo aggressor, but like a, a, a steamboat or a, a Von Eric or whatever, they're always the aggressor. They're, 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 they're the ones that are pumped up that need to get that title or whatever. And Flair is just kind of like, you know, well, I'm going to be, you know, this, this, this kind of, this kind of like machismo kind of thing. And then I'm going to be running away from you most of the match until you make a mistake. And then that's when I'm going to capitalize. Right. He's an opportunist. Opportunist. A great opportunist. And then Flair's a baby face is different too. He wrestles very differently. He's that's, got that's more of a traditional true. baby face when he does that kind of thing. But as a heel, he's like, yeah, an ultimate opportunist. But this, like you said, and just to, to just to sort of reiterate what you've been saying, it's like the aggressiveness that they're both, you know, exchanging. There's never like there's never a point where you think um, one guy's stronger than the other. It's just who's going to outlast. And then you see, uh, you know, I mean, even Rick and Morton's pulling the trunks, you know, you know, grabbing, you know, I think on one on one of the roll ups, he's got Flair's trunks and then. You know, Flair's obviously putting his feet on the ropes and doing all these other things, trying to get out of the cage. But those are, it's that's few and far between. Other than that, it's just a brawl. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's pretty cool to see because normally five, 10 minutes in, Rick Flair's always trying to make the dart out or, or capture an op- opportunity. So, like you said, it is sort of a unicorn match in that sense. Yeah. You know, it's with, with Flair, the, it, it's interesting. The other Flair match I have in this book is Flair Funk from Great American Bash, which again is not a flair match. Same similar thing, right? And this this time he's the babyface aggressor, right? Mm-hmm. Go, go coming after Funk and trying to get his revenge and in a very different kind of thing. I, I you know, I if w- when I do Way of the Blade too, I'm having to just find a traditional Ric Flair match to put on there, like an old-fashioned Ric Flair. I mean, he certainly has bleeds a ton in all of his matches. It's not gonna be hard to find one where that where they uh where that famous blonde hair, you know. Yeah, platinum blonde hair doesn't get red. That's like a really iconic, you know, sort of visual from my childhood is, is seeing Ric Flair with the with the white blonde hair stained red right. on the cover of Wrestling Eye magazine or on the in a video or a match or something like that. But I, you know, I kind of went for the little bit of the little bit of the outlier flares, right? Uh, which is pretty. Which is, well, I mean, know, I, but I think that's kind of cool. I mean, my, you know, when I was watching part of the match, my nine-year-old came in and sat down next to me, and immediately got sucked into it and got involved in it. And I thought to myself, this match is like 30, 40 years old, and it's still relatable. It's still capturing a nine-year-old's attention. Yes. Who's seen, you know, who the CM Punks are? Who's seen? You know the the sort of the the well, what's his name? Um, uh, uh, the champ for WWE right now. Uh, God, why? Roman Reigns. Roman Reigns. He's you know, and the Fiend, and these types of guys, right? 
And that's kind of like what he's seeing for the first time. But yet then now he's sitting down watching this Ricky Morton, uh, Ric Flair match, fully engaged, asking questions, getting involved in the drama, the ups and downs. He goes, man, are these guys, are these guys really hitting them each other? <laughs> like, you know, he knows it's a work, but, but then he's asking me, are these guys actually doing it? Was there something different about this wrestling than the wrestling I'm watching? Like, it was like really kind of cool to kind of, um, to have his sort of observation because um, you know, to see it kind of through his eyes, you know, because well, that's I mean, cool the way I felt, you know? Yeah. And I think it was with the, you know, when I was growing up and started when watching wrestling with the WWF, right. That's obviously the thing you most times, unless you're in a, you know, grew up in the Bay area, same as you did. And then we didn't have like a really, a prom- we didn't have like a regional promotion that was in the Bay area when we were growing up. There was, you know, later indie stuff, but nothing like what nothing in the eighties. There wasn't like there wasn't Memphis or Connell. No, I think our I think the promotion that would have been run in our area would have been closed down by eighty two, eighty three. Yeah, yeah, like the the the, the sort of va- the Roy Shires, yeah, the big time, stuff, big time wrestling. Because the first professional wrestling matches I ever went to was a big time wrestling match. Okay, this is yeah. like super like nineteen eighty probably. Right, you're a, we're, we're, a, we're I'm a, I'm maybe three or I'm maybe four or five years younger than you. So we're we're both. We're both, uh, you know, men of a certain, certain era, certain stature. But I'm a little younger. So yeah, but it was all closed down by the time I was there. So the first stuff I watched was, you know, Saturday Night's main event. You yeah. know, WWE superstars on Channel 44 wrestling. And then when I saw, you know, and that is very, especially, you know, very produced, very, yeah. you know, slick and very, you know, really aimed towards kids uh, in a lot of ways. And then when you watch something like this, man. You know, when I first got into UA, it was like really compelling because it's like this isn't this. This is not the Hulkster and Hillbilly Gym, right? Oh. This is this has got a certain sort of grittiness and a certain sort of. I mean, you know, that this was. It's hard to say that anything on a giant thing like TBS was was the spirit of independent things. Right. Obviously, independent, but it kind of was in a lot of ways, right? That it really felt a lot more sort of adult and yes. and 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 real. You know, Real, yeah, and I can understand why somebody who uh, you know watches and even now they're very overproduced, very slick, and and you know, and, and this is not that, right? This has got some some sepia in the tone of the footage, and, and it really felt that way when you're watching. And you know, I, I always say that I mean, I, it, it's surprising I turned out to be an okay guy who treats, I mean, because my male role models growing up were <laughs> Ric Flair and Too Short. I mean, how do you how do you end up with Ric Flair? You know, so how do I not a scumbag with Ric Flair and Too Short as the two as my two uh, male role models as a child? Well, you know, I mean, it's a different era, right? I mean, but <laughs> two pretty cool role models, if you ask. I mean, in some ways, pretty cool, but like you know, as far as being nice to women and being like, no, a, no, yeah. like a, a sensitive dude, those aren't guys who 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 delivered that as an example, right? I mean, Ric Flair was a guy who was you know on there talking about his his Lear jets and talking about space mountain yeah. and then and uh what do you say the 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 old stride still has the longest line uh, yeah <laughs> it's not a not a healthy uh not a, a healthy model of of uh adult relationships with either of those two things maybe, but that's, was... maybe that's why i'm i'm over two in the marriage game or, you know <laughs> right you would have been a little you're a little too short maybe a little maybe not too short right what would be what was your like i'm 
10 or 11 years old, my musical role model. Well, right then and there, I mean, at that point, it was punk. So, I mean, but before then it was Kiss. So, I mean, you know, talk about, you know, um, Kiss, ACDC, Cheap Trick. And then I heard the Ramones and then it was over. You know, then I was like, oh, those records kind of went into the shelf a little bit. And then I just consumed as much punk rock as I possibly could. Just because my older brother was into it. And then all of our friends who were into it, and it was very like, I, I think it was relatable for me because we were like, you know, these working poor kids living in project housing, you know what I mean? And, and this, the, the attitude and, and the sentiment and the lyric that was coming out was like so relatable and talking, it felt like it was talking about my life. So it was no longer about like how many, you know, Christine 16 or how nice your car was or anything like that. It's like, we didn't have that. Right. So we had like, you know, you know, drinking with our friends till 3am or whatever the case may be. But like the wrestling thing, when it came in, into my life, there was a guy named Andy Finney who moved from, he was from Detroit and he used to go see all the shows at Cobo hall and go see the Sheik and everything else. And And the first time I ever saw wrestling was through him. And Andy collected all the wrestling magazines, like the wrestler inside wrestling, pro wrestling illustrated. And he had a stack of them. And the first time I kind of saw him, I was kind of looking at him because they had this like women's apartment wrestling. There was like, <laughs> sure. you know, what I'm talking about. And I was kind of like looking through that and I'm like, well, it's, you know, kind of pseudo like Cinemax porn or whatever. And uh, a lot harder to get porn in the, in the 80s and the 90s than it is for these kids today. Right. You had to really I, go through some hoops. Yeah, so you have to use your imagination. You had, right? to, earn, you had to earn your pornography. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, so, you, I mean, so I, he gave me these magazines when I was about 11. And I remember looking through them because like all, like like you all, I, I saw the WWF. I think the AWA had a TV, TV show. Because I remember Gene Oakland when he was still in the AWA. Right. And then I remember uh, Eric Bischoff when he was still in the AWA. Sure, that would have that would have been the sort of tail end of the AWA. Yeah, so it was on ESPN. And when I saw the Road Warriors and Jerry Blackwell and Nick Bockwinkle and in and, and uh, Rick Martell and uh, you know all that those Stan Hansen would have been around that Stan time. Hansen was there. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Uh, uh, Jumping uh, B. Brian Blair, Jumping Jim Brodzell. I believe they're both at the in the AWA. Yeah, um, it would have been. Greg Gagne would have been big around then. And what was it? Was it? It might have been Greg Gagne, Jumpin' Jim. Or yeah, it was the High Flyers. And Flyers Greg, right. Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel were the big, were the big tag team in the AWA before. And Larry, Larry and Kurt, I think, did a little tag team for a second. Sure. And then, uh, so, and I liked the AWA stuff, and I thought that was cool because that was a little bit more gritty. But then once we got cable TV and WTVS and the Superstation and get that NWA TV. And then these magazines are now coming to my TV screen. And I yeah. knew about all these guys. I knew about Hacksaw Jim Duggan and his feud with, with fricking uh, uh, Ted, Ted DiBiase or the Junkyard Dog. Cause I read yeah. I knew about the New England Sheep Herders. And I, I remember I used to dream and I used to tell my mom, you know, she'd go, you know, she would ask me sometimes, where do you want to go? Like, what do you want to I want to go to the Omni in Georgia. You know what I mean? <laughs> and one time in 1995, yeah, it was 1995 in, in Rancid. We were in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was taking a, and I, and I had, we had a day off, and I wanted to go see where the Omni was. And it was like an hour away from where we were staying. 
And I got into a cab and I don't even think it's there anymore, if I remember <laughs> correctly. But I had the cab driver take me to where the Omni was. And me and him talked wrestling the whole way there. To visit, you had to visit the shrine. You had that, to do a, a pilgrimage to Mecca. I understand that. Was that. My, that was my Gilman Street, you know, yeah. like, you know, Gilman Street to Matt and Tim, you know, that wasn't my era, you know, but uh, the thing, the thing for me was like that wrestling and seeing all those guys now on my TV. And like you said, watching the NWA, that, that was a whole, it was a whole, it was like, it was like, it was adult themed wrestling. It was real. It was more relatable in a lot of ways than these, like, like the, the, the superheroes, like you could yeah. see where Vince was trying to take it. It was like yeah. more larger than life characters, which made it his product huge. Right. But then you had these real guys, you know, yeah. like Dusty Rhodes is talking about what it's like to work in a steel mill. Right. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and, and then you've got, I mean, I, I, I talked about the book, how, how like, in real, it, when I talk about the war games, in a, how it really was like a battle between, you know, working class America and Reagan America. And the horsemen were like basically the representation of, of, the, of Reagan's America, right? J.J. Dillon is like the, the, the strike breaking, you know, manager. Totally. Of, I mean, that's what it was. Well, and, and then Dusty's like a guy who's like, look, you know, I'm the son of a plumber. I'm, right. you know, I'm the American dream. I'm somebody who's going to come in and put, I've got, you know, dirt under my fingernails. And then you saw, I mean, really the example of it is you saw what Vince did to Dusty, right? Yeah. He turned the American dream into uh, a, a, like a clown. Yeah. Right. And in, in took what, what sort of that connection Dusty Rhodes had to the average person and, you know, made it kind of a, a joke. And that was the difference between those two promotions, right? Like Dusty's going to talk about hard times, in, in, in NWA in 1986, and he's going to connect to people who have left were left behind by what was happening in the country. Yes, and and you know we're and and we're being victimized by people like Tully Blanchard and Ric Flair and JJ Dillon and you know and, and all and uh, Lux Luger and all of those guys who sort of represented what was happening in the in the country in a lot of ways. You know, you're absolutely right, and I never, I guess, I never even really looked at that like that. You know, because, but it makes so much sense why it probably resonated with so many people, you know, and especially in that, in that part of the world. Yeah. And, uh, and, and like I said, you're a, you grew up, you're a working class kid. I'm a working class kid, man. I didn't, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I lived in an apartment, you know, in Berkeley off to, off of Telegraph Avenue, like, you know, a two bedroom place i you know i didn't never i never had a, i didn't have a yard this is the first you know this, the place i'm living in now is like the first house i've ever lived in, in my entire life <laughs> you know, 40 odd years old so it's like you you connect with what the stories that these guys are telling no for sure and and i think that they spoke to you in a lot of ways and made you feel like a part of it and that's some that's an element of professional wrestling that's no longer there like i feel like there's guys that 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 i mean there's a few guys that can do it but still, but to transcend out of the TV screen, not just being a talking head in front of a camera, like most wrestlers are, mm -hmm. they're just talking heads in front of the cameras. The guys like Dusty Rhodes who could reach out of the out of the TV and grab you and pull you in. Like, you know, talking about the hard times, even Ric Flair, even as arrogant as he was cutting a promo, he could make you believe everything Ar arn anderson is another guy or jake the snake is another guy 
But if you think about all those dudes, Tolly Blanchard, another one. But if you think about all those dudes, you know, who, like, who in the modern age is, has that ability to grab up, pick up a mic. I mean, the last big promo in professional wrestling was CM Punk's pipe, pipe bomb. Yeah. Right. That yeah. is like, because that was real. That was legit. Yeah. Eddie Kingston's the only one who I think would Eddie Kingston would... and Moxie. I think Moxie has that. I think yeah. Moxie can bring that, bring you in, pull you up. Just the way he talks and the way he delivers. But I mean, it's like, if you think about it, it's like, that's what was so big, a big part of Dusty, a big part of Flair, and even a big part of the rock and rolls to get you to believe in them. It's like that ability to be able to sell you to believe in them, you know? Yeah, and, and those guys weren't amazing pr- promos, but they had like this sort of a way of, uh, you know, Ricky especially connecting with, you know, with his wrestling in a lot of ways as a guy who was so sympathetic and so, you know, timed everything perfectly and got you to believe in everything he did. And I mean, that was the amazing thing we're talking about. He said, you go you'd watch an episode of World Championship. There was, World Championship Wrestling never had great, often really, really great matches. It would be squash match, squash, but it'd be squash match, flare promo, squash match, dusty promo, squash match, you know, uh, Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express talking. I mean, it was like, you can't, I mean, if you think about that, just like every one after the other, the great, greatest shit talkers yeah. in the world talking shit one after another after another i mean you and then you know these great angles and just you know and and how they would sort of shuffle different feuds i mean it, just, it was so compelling and then you know when you get a chance to watch the matches which wasn't always but would they, whether they would have one that would show up on tv or you'd go get starcade at the videos i mean they it delivered you know, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. But I also think that 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 you know that whole element of not giving that away on TV to get asses and seats. You know, that's I mean that's business, right? But you know, there's it's not saying that there's nothing enjoyable about a Rocky King match or watching the Mulkies get over. You know what I mean? That one time that they did get over. But um, and I and I digress. But it's like it's that that era of professional wrestling. I feel like was all about. It was for me that WWF was sensationalism. The the NWA was more of the realism, right? Like hundred percent, and then yeah. exactly, and and it is why I mean, it just doesn't. When I look back on it, this is the stuff that I look back on with, and this is the stuff that I revisit. It's you know, I'm not necessarily although there's individually individual great shit in the WWF in the '80s. I've got some of it in the book, and you know, you can find find really they had obviously really talented performers but it this is the stuff this is the stuff that i'm gonna come back to again and again and this was along with other you know regional stuff from this you know memphis stuff and you know mid-south stuff which is all stuff that i discovered you know later in life right i didn't i didn't see jerry lawler wrestle until he came to the wwf really and like you know it's or outside of an occasional world-class match on espn right you know, until much later and then because obviously I remember when world-class came on espn and i would get some sometimes confused by the tv because it would seem like i the, sometimes the stories were kind of on point with the magazines i was reading and but then there was well the espn stuff was like three years old when it came up it was legends of world-class wrestling so it was it was wrestling from 1984 and 1987 because well because see the thing about it is i wasn't that the time frame that it was on tv though no it, no the stuff on espn was all two or three years earlier than it was being aired 
So that was why it was so confusing. Is you would have well, it would have you would have eighty four world class being aired in eighty seven and eighty eight. Ah, oh, gotcha. Okay, well, eighty-three world class, and it would, and they would jump around too. So it wasn't always what was on the show that was on Tuesday. Didn't always wasn't always the show after the one on Monday. Sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes it was a year and a half later. Right. And it was like, wait a minute, who, who's that guy? What's doing this? Right? Or you'd see, you know, or you'd know from the magazines that these Von Erichs were dead already, well, but then just, they were. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, because the thing about it is, is I remember when my uh, I, when we first got a VCR, and it wasn't until like the mid '80s. You know, we were like full last of the ball game when it came to a VCR. And I remember AWA had the TV show on ESPN at the time. And I remember because I remember recording it because I saw well, uh, you know, uh, was a baby bull Leon White, sure, who became. Big Van Vader. Little did you know, but you could kind of see back then. You know, the Baby Bull was actually a pretty good wrestler. That was a big motherfucker too. I mean, it was like you know, <laughs> but it was like at the Showboat or something. I think that's where they were. Uh, yeah, yeah, they did. They did. That was the period where they were they were taping from Vegas. Right. Exactly. And so, uh, I mean, but there's so much great wrestling at that time when you think about it. I mean, I remember you know the Saturdays or the Sundays or whatever. I guess it would have been Saturday, but you would have, you know. Um, you'd have the WWF in the morning, then you would get followed by Glow, right? Sure. And then you had on Channel 26, I had Polynesian Pacific Championship Wrestling with Lars Sanderson and High Chief Peter, Peter Maivia. And I just remember being so stoked out that there was a wrestler with the name Lars, you know what oh, I mean? Sure, that's right. You know, even though he was a bad guy. And I actually went and saw Polynesian Pacific in, in at the San Jose Civic and uh, with my friend Jeff. And we saw the main event was High Chief against Lars Anderson. And I think, uh, I'm trying to remember who, Rocky Johnson, I think, wrestled that day. Because I, I, lo- I love Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson, that tag team. That was like, that was my tag oh, team. Oh, man, so I didn't realize that Polynesian Pro ran the Bay Area. What year would that have been? Why wasn't <laughs> I at that show? Um, that would have been 80, let's see, Jeff, so 84. 384. Okay, yes, yeah, so that was why. I was, I was still I, I was still I, I was seven. Okay, I got you now. Yeah, Feels maybe, like a f- yeah, maybe 85. And I'm that- San Jose Civic. My mom gave me and my buddy Jeff a ride down there. It cost us ten dollars for a front row ringside ticket. And and there was no rails, it was just a piece of rope. You know what I mean? And it oh, was awesome. Cool. We sat right on the corner and we, and we were right by the, the, the entrance there, you know, where the wrestlers came through and then so after Polynesian Pro, which would happen sometimes and not happen sometimes, then you would have NWA, and then hopefully maybe you would get a Saturday Night's Main event, and then you would get the Mid South. You know what I mean? With every the cliffhanger, you know, every, after you know, it was you had uh, Doctor Death, Steve Williams with the Freebirds, and all, so I mean, it was like a go- golden age of professional wrestling. Yeah, I, I think Polynesian and Mid South were done, but done from on bay area tv by the time i started watching you'd have uh california championship wrestling would show up on one of those uhf stations every once in a while where it was like the same four episodes over and over again wild man jack armstrong and uh fucking (laughs) ripper savage it was like the shittiest thing (laughs) they had like six they taped like six episodes ever and there's the same six episodes would just air for you know over and over again on some uhf station like i'm watching california championship but i'm pretty sure i've seen this one before (laughs) (laughs) but i mean if you think about that time in professional wrestling what was going on and how many magazines were available and and all these uh, this information it's like it's not like you know 
you had to go out and actually search for it. You know, yeah. you had to find that magazine stand. You knew where the shoddy video place was where you yeah, could get, sure. get the stuff. You know, so it was, it was almost like underground, like black market wrestling. You know what I mean? Yeah. Delowers so, magazine stand on Telegraph Avenue in Oakland near the end of right where Telegraph meets Broadway. Yeah. Was, I think it's still there, but that was the place my mom would go shopping and like, just, I'd be like, all right, go to Macy's. Just I'll be, I'll be here in Delowers running through the 35 wrestling magazines. They haven't read them all. And you can just uh, come back. It was like, my mom would use it as like daycare. She's like, all right, you should stay here. I got some things to do. I'm like, that's fine. I'm just going to be here. I'm going to be here at the newsstand, happy as a clam, right. Right, reading all these wrestling magazines. Uh, and, and I'm, you know, don't worry about me. Well, let uh, me ask you a question and, and tell me what you think. I mean, do you think Ricky Morton would have had that opportunity to wrestle Ric Flair if it wasn't for Magnum and for Robert's injury? I mean, it almost feel, it feels like it was like the perfect storm for him. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I've, I've, I've gotten to be friends with Ricky Morton over the years here, and I've had him on our podcast and talked to him, not specifically about these matches, but I did talk to him for a, for a while about the Ric Flair feud. And uh, he, he actually beat Ric Flair for the belt, if I remember correctly, in Virginia. Well, no, he never had, unless it was a phantom title change. I don't, he certainly never, if you no. look in the history of the NWA World Championship, Ricky Morton well, never helped. This, this is what I heard. And I, this is, I thought maybe you might know, but, I, and I never asked him this question. But I heard that he won the belt in like Virginia because they wanted him to be the guy. And they said, well, now we're going to have to break up the Rock and Roll Express, blah, blah, this and that. And he handed the belt back and said, no, I'm not going to do that. So what I had heard, and I don't know if this, you know, it's all, it's wrestling, man. So, you know, it's yeah. all, it's, it's, it's by definition, a tall tales, uh, <laughs> you know, but what, what I had heard, which is sort of like that, is that they had, he had been offered the Ronnie Garvin. Oh, but where Garvin, you know, where he had the, where he, you know, like how, where Garvin won the title from Flair, I think it was in 87, yeah. to lose it back in Starcade. Right. And how they gave him, he was offered that spot, the, the win it and the, and then lose it back. And he turned that spot down probably because they were going to break up the Rock Roll Express Maybe. or just, or just, he may have realized that's not a great spot to be. I mean, Rod, Roddy Garvin was out of wrestling, basically what, two years after the, you know, was yeah. done wrestling two or three years after that was over? His career did not last much longer, right? He's out of the NWA. He had the short run in WWF where he had the feud with Valentine. And that was, you know, that's pretty much it for Ronnie Garvin. And, and Morton may have realized, you know what, that's a, that's a poison chalice, this, like, three-month-old take it. Because, you know, nobody ever really accepted Ronnie Garvin with that title. Right, yeah, like, no, I know. I mean, and that was the thing. I mean, I, I, I feel like I remember very, very much, very distinctly when that happened. And it was kind of like, you're happy for a moment because Ric Flair lost, but then you're like, oh, wait, Ronnie Garvin's our champion? Ronnie Garvin? I mean, I love Ronnie Garvin. I absolutely love Ronnie Garvin. I don't want to say a bad word about Ronnie Garvin. If you told me that you could find me five Ronnie Garvin matches I'd never seen before, I'd do a little dance in my living room. But well, in fact, that you were not, he wasn't Ric Flair. No, he and, wasn't Ric Flair. And he, he, and he wasn't Dusty. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't, I guess Luger was the guy I think you could have seen with that. It just, well, the personality, that was the thing. I think being Canadian, wasn't he French Canadian from? Yeah, I think he's, yeah, he's French Canadian. So, I mean, I, I feel like th there wasn't, it was hard for him to kind of transmit. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I don't, I think it's not, I don't think he didn't have a personality. It just, but he was a brawler. You know, he was like, 
he's like the guy on the job site that like when you have problems with the with with some dude stealing lumber like hey ronnie can you handle this dude you know what okay. i mean you know no I mean? problem yeah <laughs> open hand chop the skin off their chest <laughs> exactly he's kind of like dino bravo he's like a yeah. dino bravo but right. he, was, he was like the nwa's dino bravo right. i felt with, with, well, I mean, uh, although Dino Bravo wouldn't, wouldn't open hand chop the guy, the stealing lover, Dino Bravo would bury the guy in a hole. You've never <laughs> seen the fucking guy's body. <laughs> you ever go do a Google search on Dino Bravo's uh, background? That guy was a, uh, was, a, was a Canadian mob enforcer. That's right. That's right. But I mean, I mean, you know, Ricky Morton, I think being a second generation, even a th- was he even a third generation wrestler? I know he was. I know. I know his second his dad, generation. His dad is the one that trained him, I believe. His dad was a longtime rep Memphis referee. Okay. So if, that- you, if you go look back, I mean, if you look at a, a lot of those Memphis matches were, were, uh, were uh, refereed by, by Ricky Morton's dad. Right. Okay. So, I mean, I think just having that for him, you know what I mean? It's probably what made him so good because I, I bet you, you know, you know, when he was describing to me how he was kind of coming up, how much harder it was for him being a sort of a second generation because you know, you got to almost work like twice as hard to be twice as good, kind of like The Rock or anybody else. And I think The Rock transcended, you know, wrestling. And I think Ricky Morton did that in a lot of ways, too, just because he, the personality that he had. And like to go back to that match and that believability, because, I mean, Ricky Morton's not like a big guy. No. You know what I mean, I mean, very small for the era. Right. And but and but he, Flair's bigger than him. Yeah. But it's still like there's still a fighting chance. And actually, Flair puts him over so much harder, like you said, with the he's got to be so aggressive to beat this guy. But this guy in stature is not actually as big as him. Yeah, maybe Ricky Morton's 5'9, five 5'10, nine, five maybe. maybe. I think I think Flair's, you know, he's probably I mean, every obviously the wrestlers from the 80s, a lot of times in the day, I mean, those guys were so enormous that yeah. Flair seems smaller. Flair's a big guy. Yeah, he's a big dude. He's I mean, now now every wrestler is five net five eight, but back then, you know, like you know, even even the guys you thought were small were big, right? Like, like, like oh, you actually see him, it's like Jesus, that guy's actually enormous. I didn't always thought of him as a little guy, but and, and probably even when you see Ricky Morton, he probably comes off as bigger than you think he is. Well, you know, the funny thing about it is, it's like I met the Macho Man one time at a trade show, and I walked up to him and I met him, and I realized I was as tall as him. I'm like, I'm I'm maybe six foot. And there's Macho Man, and I'm looking like we're like looking like this at each other, meeting each other. I was like, for some reason, I thought you, were, you know, I never didn't say this to him, but it's like, I, you know, he, I thought he was ginormous, but then when you think about it, like I, I maybe, I don't know, it's like what you think they are, and then when you finally see him, when I and I met Ricky when I first met Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson because they came to town um, and wrestled for a small indie here about three, four years ago, whatever it was. And it's the first time we met in person. And uh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't pay attention to that aspect, but I think you're right. I mean, he might only be about five, nine, five, 10, the tallest really, right. but just they're big dudes. They're thick, thick guys, you know? Yeah. And I think it, you know, now that a lot of, you know, that's a barrier that's been broken now, even in the WWF, a lot of those guys, WWE right now, a lot of those guys are not who are on top aren't big guys. Right. You know, Brian Danielson's not a big person. Uh, um, and CM Punk's kind of tall, but not, but not. I think he's like six one, maybe. Okay. But, uh, but he's he's pretty thin. I mean, he, when he was fighting, you know, he got down to what like one eighty five or something. Yeah. Like that. So now, 
you know, I mean, he's probably hovering around 200. I haven't seen him in a while, but um, I'm going to see him here in a month or so. But uh, when we're out in Chicago, but um, no, but oh, are you, are you, are you breaking news on the uh, podcast? No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. We're playing Chicago. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> No, we're playing in Chicago on the on the I get I think it's the 18th at the Riot Fest. There's like oh, a big festival. Sure, I know Riot Fest. Yeah. So I'm going out there and, and normally I'm taking the kids out a couple days early so we can all hang out and you know because he hasn't seen the boys since shit. I mean, probably when he left, like left left. So that's a while. That's a long time ago now. Yeah, because the last time he was he he was at the house. He came over here with Kofi. When they, when they were when they they were driving through, they, they, I think they did San Jose and they were driving to Sacramento, and Soren, my youngest, had just been born. And I got pictures of Kofi and and Punk when because they were holding him; he was brand new. And uh, and Co there was a big plate of chocolate chip cookies. And at the time, Punk wasn't. He think he was the champ at the time, so he's like, "I'm, I'm off of sugar, whatever it was." And Kofi just took the plate. It was just he's like, "I'm off the <laughs> you know. What I mean? And uh, but I remember I had Gallows here at one point. It's Gallows now. Gallows is a big dude. Gallows because when he was doing the Straight Edge Society or whatever, um, you know. But uh, yeah, so um, it's been a while since uh, since he's seen. I think it's been almost well, maybe it's been about no, because no, it's probably been about five years since he's seen the kids. You know. So just because it's just, you know, he, he's come here since then, since he stopped and um, he stayed here for, yeah, no, no, he, he was here. Yeah. About, yeah, it's probably about four years. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's overdue. You know what I mean? Since sure. I mean, it's, it's easy once, you know, life, well, I mean, we had a year and a half where we hardly saw anybody. Right. So it's easy just to you lose track of folks, even if you're close to them, man, it's like, it's been had a long time. I mean, it's funny just doing this podcast, just reconnecting with, with you know Russell buddies of mine and talked to you know Rob Naylor who you, you know I think and I love he, Rob you know well, good good buddy of mine and, and we hadn't probably when we did a pod together it's like man I don't think I talked to this kid in six seven eight years and you know we used to when back when I was on the east coast you know we used to be we used to be running buddies at these wrestling shows like we'd show up at ROH or go to JPW or whatever CZW shows and, and just you know and hang and I, I you know I'd been a long time since I had really you know, I haven't been to I haven't been to a wrestling. I haven't been to like a non Denver Lucha show and since really I moved out here outside of the one time I went to went to WrestleMania weekend. It's been a, a minute since I've been I haven't been to live wrestling, obviously, since since COVID, certainly. And you know well, what about Will? Have you talked to Will lately? Talked to Will, uh yeah, I talked to him uh a couple about a couple months ago but it but it had been a while since i talked to him too it just you know you you, you kind of lose track of folks. i mean just so that's the way life works right you kind of lose track of folks you're like when you talk to them it's like man i, I used to talk to these guys more man. Just, well, you know I, I was i was um i was going through my closet because i had to get some stuff out and stuff and i found all these boxes that i had saved and there were all like these these dvds from um from will and so and that's this last time I talked to him, I called him. I said, do you have any remember memory of what you sent me in this box? Because he used to just label them T one or. <laughs> sure. And I'm like, I, you know, I don't even think, I think I had even a DVD player hooked up at the time, but it's so great now because um, I just got this uh, um, 
I've, I've disconnected. This is, this is for folks listening to this. We're, we're getting into nostalgia. This is Good Helmet, who, uh, Will, Will Helmet, good, good friend of both of ours, and one of the great uh, compilers of professional awesome. wrestling of all time. Like, and I, I don't, he doesn't really do this anymore, but back in the day, man, he used to put together 60 disc uh, Terry Funk sets or 50 disc Ric Flair sets or 35 disc Smoky Mountain sets where we just get to see all the wrestling in the world. He, uh, he re, uh, remastered all of my old I, I predated him in the in the I was a tape trader. I wasn't even a DVD trader. The old Schneider comp tapes. He put them all on DVD and with actual watchable video quality, which is different from the 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 uh, VC the uh, VHS tapes that folks used to buy from me when I was sitting in my uh, dorm room in college, <laughs> putting with two VCRs together, earning uh, beer money by selling wrestling tapes. Well, you know, I have a I still have because I remember I got all your Schneider tapes. Uh, on from when Will reburned them all, yeah, and and put them and like he's like, no, I've upgraded the matches and all the <laughs> some of your old freaking tapes, man. Because <laughs> I cause, and I bought them from you, and okay. also there's another guy. Well, I apologize for the video quality. No, no, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. You never know would have known it was me too, because I always used to use an alias because I was always kind of freaked out if anybody, you know. Because I would always have, you know, I didn't have a PO box or whatever, and I was always freaked out. But anyways, long story short. Well, you had, you had to you was wrestling was the, you know, at some point you just embrace your weirdness, right? But you know, you don't want to see when you're 25, like too, too, too much into something like that. Well, I don't care, you know. Like, no, I, mean, I, I always, I always, I always wore my a passion for wrestling on my sleeve. But that, that was, I'm never ashamed about that. I just didn't want to get. I've always felt weird about giving people my home address when I bought something from them. You know what I mean? Sure. sure, you don't know. You don't know what. What you don't know. You don't know me from Adam. I might. I might be. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you've had to deal with crazy fans over the that's, years. That's the thing. I, over the years, because you know, I've lived in the same place now since 1997, right? So I've, I've, you know, sometimes next door neighbors figure out where I'm at, and then their cousins will be visiting for Christmas, like the band, and come over, and knock on my door, and ask me for an autograph during turkey dinner or something. I'm just like. <laughs> Yo, man, like, come on. I'm happy to do it for you, but Jesus Christ, like, you know, don't, right, yeah. you know, this is weird. You, you know, <laughs> you know, anyways, but uh, there was another guy who you could pick the matches off his website. Jeff and, Lynch, maybe? Was it Lynch? Yeah, he was the, he, although I don't know the website. I mean, back when I was getting matched from Jeff Lynch, it would be, giant mimeographed pieces of paper you get in the thing and you get to pay him 10 bucks for his for all of it for his his enormous match list and he'd send it to you fedex and like, that's fucking, right. they'd be like this thick and then you just go through it and then you get an update in the mail every month uh, and you look through it and you go oh this match from this brazos match and this other match and if we give him 20 bucks and put them all on tape for you yeah, that that's because and but there was another guy. That, I remember Lynch's now, but there was another guy. It was mostly Japanese stuff, maybe, or I would go to him for Japanese. Yeah, there's a there's uh, a fair there was a fair number May, of May, Mayflower or Mayweather or um, yes, Mayfield. Yes, George Mayfield. George Mayfield. That's sure. Right. And he would organize Japanese tours too. Oh, what always, yeah, that was another thing you would do would be like, we're take everybody's going on a George Mayfield tour to the Tokyo Dome. And I was always a little, I was like either right out of college or in college. And I always think about it and I always think, yeah, 
do I really spend a week with the people who would kind of do this? I would always feel like a little, I mean, was, there was a, you know, like it was always be a little nervous. I, you know, in hindsight, it's like, man, fuck, I should have just gone to the goddamn Tokyo. No, but I did well, did you, have you saved been, up some money and, and done it. But uh, have you ever been over there to see uh, wrestling yet? No, I've been to Mexico a bunch. Okay. Um, uh, over, I had been to Mexico a bunch over years. I had like a thing where it was like a, like a, there was a dude who ran a Mexican prom, uh, show in DC like just a loser show in DC. And I got like, uh, like hooked up with that dude and like said, you know, I'll help you out when you try to do shows and you know, whatever. And it, it was very sketchy. I think and it, and so, but I went on a couple trips to Mexico uh, with him and like he ran a show in Mexico. And then once he just wanted uh, me to show up at meetings he was doing in a suit, and just don't pretend they didn't, and, and I didn't speak Spanish, because I think he just wanted to think, to think that he had an American backer from some business he was doing. I don't know. Maybe I was smuggling heroin. I wasn't sure exactly what the fuck was going on, but I got a free trip to Mexico out of it, and I got to go to Arena Mexico to watch fucking That's Santo great. in Arena Mexico. So I was like, yeah, sure. What do you need me to do? Stand here in a suit and look like a banker? No problem. Count me in. <laughs> and I actually did. We actually ran a show in Monterey. And I did commentary on the show. The only time I've ever done wrestling commentary was on this wrestling show in Monterey, Mexico, oh, uh, wow. where that had like a Satanico and Super Astro and like Tajiri even before he was in ECW. It was a long right. time ago. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, a bunch of Brazil Oro and a bunch of really, really great wrestlers in this like warehouse somewhere in Mont Monterey. It was very strange. Uh, so I've been to Mexico a bunch of times. I've never been in sea wrestling, but I've never been to Japan. Um, and you know, Japan, Japanese wrestling kind of passed me by a little bit. Not an enormous fan of it now, right? Uh, what's currently so I don't know even how, how amped I would be to go now versus going in like 1996 when I could have gone to a battle art show and a Mikinoku yeah, yeah. Pro show and seen Shinya Hashimoto and you know, and seen uh Masao or Kawada. I just just seeing Tanahashi just wouldn't do it for me as much now as, as it would have back then. All right. Yeah, no, I, I got a chance to go over there. I mean, because I, I was did a tattoo shop over there for, for a few years, and I was over there quite extensively. I mean, through the tours, when we'd go over there and tour, you know, if we had a day off, I would I would find, you know, was able to go <laughs> see a lot of shows, different promotions while I was there. Even got a chance to meet Masawa. I got a picture with him and everything. Oh, that's pretty awesome. So, and he was a really, really cool guy, even though he they said that he didn't speak English and then he spoke perfect English to me. <laughs> but, um, you know, and then we met uh, Timon Honda and, and a few of the other guys. It was pretty, pretty cool. Timon Honda, one of my all-time favorites. Love that fucking dude. Yeah, I mean, he was, he, he's nuts. I love him. <laughs> and he's in a band. He was in a punk band. Um, they were called the Timones, like the Ramones. And they did, they did all uh, Ramones covers. Really? Yeah, but the Timones. How, how yeah. were they as a band? I, you know, I never got a chance to see it. But, uh, so there you go. That's that's tremendous. I need, yeah. to, I need to say, I mean, if, if, if there's a Timones album, you figure it's got to be on the internet somewhere, right? It's the internet. I think so. But that, right. yeah, I remember he was telling me about it, you know, because he he couldn't speak very good English. He was an Olympic guy, wasn't he? he was an Olympic, yeah, he was an Olympic wrestler. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, um, but I saw like a lot of shows over there, Big Japan. I went, I actually went to a hustle show over there at one point. At the at a uh, um, what you call it a sumo a, a spot where they do sumo. Um, oh, cool! So that was and, that was that Takata then uh, and Ogawa would have been your hustle dudes at that point, or maybe I want to say Inoki was there for some reason. Yeah, he was involved. 
uh, yeah, in that whole in that whole zoo. And then I think because uh, uh, Ebison was on the show, and uh, trying to think who else was on that show. There was a few. I, I don't remember. I want to say it was um, uh, um, what's his name? DiBiase's uh, kid when he was in a tag team. Oh, sure. Um, God, what, what, was what was that tag team called? Um, it, it was was with, it Japan? I, 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 think there was, I think there was a point where DBS, I mean, I remember DBS's kid was kind of uh, in the WWF for a weirdly long time, never doing anything. But I don't I, really remember what he was doing in Japan. I mean, this is an answerable question. I, can I, I, want, I feel like he was tagging with Eddie Edwards. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. I could be completely, completely wrong. <laughs> I, I thought I remember. Sure, him. let's say let's say he was taken with Eddie yeah. Edwards. Why not? <laughs> that seems right. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, shit, dude. It's it's been it's been super cool to be part of this this whole thing, uh, Phil. And I can't wait to 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 do part two. Yeah, I mean, I, we're doing a we're doing we're working on a Dustin of the Day book, which is the old DVDVR thread that we did right. back in the day. We're doing so we're doing like a Dustin based thing. Me and my buddy Tom K is the next thing, and then part two is probably gonna be after that so before, uh, before we uh you know uh call it well uh, how did you end up doing you got a wrestling podcast this is yeah. something i actually didn't know until i reached out to you again yeah. so how did that end up how did you end up getting involved in that it seems like kind of a i mean to go from punk rock i guess you're still you know obviously band still touring but but punk rock uh guitarist to wrestling podcast host how did that like uh well, where been- were the steps in between that got you there well, it's been a long journey. I mean, I, it's no secret that I'm a I'm a professional wrestling fan. You know what I mean? I think a lot of other professional wrestling fans know that I am. You know what I mean? Sure. So who might be fans of the band? And um, it all kind of starts with my buddy, Kevin Gill, who's the commentator on GCW now. And about 10, 15 years ago, we put together our, we, we promoted a show, did the commentary on the DVD. We actually uh, promoted a, two shows, one in... Um, out in in uh, kind of east way like oh god was it Brent, Brent, Brentford so I don't know and then we did one in in Reno and so that's kind of how it started and then I even managed a guy the Millwall Brawl and it was a squash match and I actually produced a few matches and, and stuff like that so I kind of st- stuck my fingers in there but uh and I, but then I kind of realized well you know it's I I'm, I'm much more of a fan than I am like I want to work in the thing you know what i'm saying yeah. i mean like, easy the easiest way to turn sixty thousand dollars into two thousand dollars is to promote a wrestling show that's correct, that is correct. <laughs> even though we were profitable but uh, you were profitable okay well that, i think by a hundred bucks but still it that was fucking counts i <laughs> not lose your shirt is is, is considered a, a success of the per- well, we paid wrestle the wrestling promotion business for sure right. we paid the rent on the building we paid all the wrestlers pretty damn good never it's all local talent we told the story you know what I mean? We, we had the whole thing written out and Kevin did most of the, the heavy lifting, I will say. And then, so, um, you know, and I would do certain little, you know, like I, I think I did, uh, you know, and then the connection with CM Punk and then being on his DVD and then, you know, all that kind of stuff. I get a, I get an email um, and by this guy, Dennis, who's the producer of the show. And he says, hey, I do this professional wrestling podcast with, uh, two major league baseball all-stars and a four-time Stanley Cup champion. 
Darren McCarty, who run, won four cups with the Red Wings, and Jason Kendall, who uh, was played for the Oakland A's. So I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of the A's. And then Dimitri Young, who played for uh, the Cincinnati Reds and a few other teams. And I used to go out and, you know, I, I love sports. So, or at least be, being a fan of sports anyways. Baseball, uh, football, hockey, basketball is not really my thing, but um, the other sports are. So they asked me if I wanted to come on. And I said, sure. And so I went on their show and it was called Wrestling with, um, re- Wrestling with Sports at the time, right? Because the, most of the guys were, you know, pro- old professional sports athletes. So I went on because they were fans of the band or whatever. But they, most importantly, they want they talk about wrestling, you know, just for fans' point of view. So and Dimitri had done some things with the WWE, and and I think um, uh, DMac had did something. I I'm not too sure. Anyways, so we 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 just had a great freaking time. And Dennis said, "Hey, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast." I said, "Listen, I'll come on anytime." He said, "How about next week?" And I was like, "Okay." So the next week came on and I, I think we, we did another show with somebody. I think we had, uh, uh, I can't even remember what happened. And then, then they, then Dennis asked me, Hey, do you want to be part of the team? Cause PD Williams is coming back. And I said, absolutely. So, and then we just kind of had a talk and we focused it on, you know, cause uh, uh, Dennis and PD had uh, the wrestling perspective before it became wrestling with sports and because Dennis used to work for ESPN and do all their podcasts. So they just, we just re- refocused it, made it all about professional wrestling. And then, you know, I've just been, we've been doing it now for, I think about six, eight months now. Cool. That's so, awesome. And it, so, it's great because, you know, you get a chance to, to talk to a lot of the younger guys, a lot of the older guys, you know, we've had Kurt Angle on, we've had CM Punk, we've had Ricky Morton, we've had, you know, Eddie Edwards, we've had Willie Mack, you know, we've got to get a lot of the new talent, you know what I mean? Which is rad because you're able to kind of see their perspective, you know, on, on certain things. And uh, it's just cool to be kind of part of it, you know what I mean? And to, to kind of be a fan and then not only be a fan, but also go also like, you know, I've been interviewed so many times in my life. Like I, I, there's, there's certain questions I just hate to be asked. And so I never asked. Did them. I did I ask any of them? On the, not at all. None at all. But this was, a, <laughs> but this is the, my favorite kind of podcast because it, it's Phil. How, you know, it's a conversation between friends. Sure. And, I think, and, and that's the, the dynamic we we have on the podcast, and I think that's why it has been like it's on Fight TV now, and we have our own YouTube and Twitch channels, and um, so there's a lot of eyes that get to, a lot of uh, views on us, and. So we, you know, break a lot of news on there, not because we're not a, like a dirt sheet kind of thing, like a Meltzer thing. We're more of a, just a fan perspective. And a lot of the times these guys get so comfortable, they just break news. You know, yeah, it's I mean? funny. I had a couple of, I did the podcast with Tony Khan uh, and, and a couple of the things in the last week got aggregated. I don't know why it was a month or something ago and a month and a half ago, but just last week, some stuff got aggregated from those podcasts. Those sites is like, I can't believe it. I don't think anybody's going to be aggregating me and my buddy, J.R. Goldberg talking about CZW shows from 2009. Like I, this podcast seems the opposite of something that would break news, but apparently somehow at least a couple of things out there got aggregated. That was really funny. I was like, I, I hope nobody listens to these other ones thinking I'm going to reveal any, uh, drop any sto- news about anything, you know, listen well, to me and Dan McCabe talk about Yuki Ishikawa. 
So that's the thing, but this is the kind of the fun stuff. And I think that other people who are like us, you know, and love this, that, you know, uh, the sport of Kings, the way that we do, and we see it, we see it in a certain way. We love it as fans and we see it as like, a, you know, as a, as it's kind of like an art form, most importantly. And I think that when you can take a look at it as a fan and see it for what it is and not only that, but just see the performance aspect of it and the storytelling and all these things. I mean, it's modern day Shakespeare. It's just, it's right in front of us, you know? This is I know we were wrapping up and I actually want to ask you a question because you brought up something I kind of actually just thought would be interesting. So you're a performer. Yeah. Primarily, you've been a performer since, for what, like 30 years now? 30? Four decades. Yeah. And, yeah. and so do you think that you view wrestling differently as somebody who performs for a living? Like, do you think you look at it with through different sort of eyes as somebody who, you know, obviously doesn't do that type of performance, but is a, is a guy you probably, how many shows do you imagine you do a, in a year that isn't, isn't a global play, a non-global plague year? You probably do what, a hundred shows, 50 shows, Well, I mean, shows? We used to do, I mean, for 20 years plus, we would do probably nine, 10 months out of the year. So, and, and a lot of times it'd be six days on one day off. And normally that one day off was a trap. That was your 800 mile drive, right? right? So getting up on that stage, like in, in having that uh, experience just made you better. And it's like, you don't even have to think about it. So that's the one thing that I do see with guys. Like I can tell who doesn't have to think about it. And then, then I tell the guy, I can tell the guys who have thought about it so much and honed in to, okay. So one time I, I remember I'm at, I'm at a Monday night raw uh, when punk won the inter IC belt off of Regal, him and Regal had that little um, program together. And I remember like punk kicks Regal sitting down and punk kicks Regal so hard in the back and Regal like grabs his arm and starts shaking, like, like trying to put the feeling back in his left arm. Right. right? Just because he's been kicked so hard in the back that maybe his arm has gone numb. Right. And just that little thing that he does that I'm picking up on, like I'm watching him, he's going like, ah, like he's not selling the back. He's, right. He's, he's selling the nerve damage from the kick to the back of the arm. Yeah. Fucking Regal's the best. Well, that's what I'm trying to say. So that that's the guy, right? That, but that might have been a lost on a lot of people, right? But psych, subconsciously, you're picking that that information up. For me, I just saw what he was doing. So I think that if there's anything that that maybe to kind of answer your question, it's like I can kind of see where the psychology lies because, like, when you write a set list, it's almost like, and I I've been writing the set list since like my eighth show in the band seventh show in the band and for me that's so important because it's like it's an it's a it's an ebb and flow right so you got to kind of like come out strong right like you got to start with the punches right and the brawl right you got to maybe do some backflips, maybe some double clotheslines get up and like look at each other square off right and then you got to get a get the guy in the headlock and bring him down to the mat that's kind of like the middle of the set right and you got to have a few little spurts right to keep people excited and then you know you got to have your go home so you got to have some high spots right mm. so that now you're getting in a time bomb right yeah. and then 
and then you got your fall back down. And then now I got to come home with the finish with Ruby Soho. One, two, three, we go home. <laughs> Excellent. That's great. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes perfect sense, right? And so, uh, you know, so it's like I almost look at the set list like I would look at a professional wrestling match, a good one, uh, or at least that I think is a good built one. And it's like funny, our drummer Brandon, he goes, Lars, he said basically I'm a wrestler trapped in a punk rocker's body. But I basically saying that I'm a, that, that you know. That's the way you visualize it. No, I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? You know, we've all seen wrestling matches that just play hit after hit after hit after hit after hit. It's just like, I, I'm numb by the time you get to your, you get to the final thing and you got to mix in. I've got to mix in this B-side, which maybe everybody in the audience hasn't heard, but the people who know, know. Exactly. Right? Like, right? And, and, you know, and, then you, and then you build to, build to, the, to, to, to your biggest hit at the end. And right. then it means more. Right. Exactly. If you just played, if you just played every every song that everybody knows one after another without any of that, then by the time you get to the last song, that's not going to mean as much as if you had some moments of exactly. oh, this one. I know this one. I wasn't expecting to hear. You got to have one. some. You got to have some near falls. You got to have some <laughs> kickouts. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is, so I feel like if anything, what I've learned from professional wrestling is how to write a better set list. And I think as a performer, like you know, taking that time. Like when you're talking to the crowd, not inundate them, you know, get them to be a part of you. Right. And I feel like that's important anyways. And I, and I think that professional wrestling really helped me learn those people skills. And I can really look at a crowd and kind of see, you know, and I, and sometimes you, I used to watch those shoot videos or whatever, and they would talk about just working the crowd or whatever it is. And it's kind of like, you have to kind of take a little bit of that psychology with you up on that stage too, because you can see when shit's getting out of control, so you might have to call an audible to bring it back down. You know what I mean? Or Punk rock shows too, right? I mean, that's yes. that's that's maybe more out of control than if you were Steely Dan, right? But if, <laughs> and maybe the, yeah, exactly, but maybe you're seeing like it's too it's slowing down too much. We our momentum, we're losing momentum. So right. let's do three back to backs, you know, or whatever. Right, or, or you know, you need to know when when it get when it gets out a little out of control. You got to calm them down. You got to call somebody in ice cream eating motherfucker and get them to chill out. Right, and you gotta you gotta, you gotta chill chill them out. And I, and I imagine there's some of that too. Yeah, for sure. But what's yeah. your what's your best what's your best I've lo- I've lost control. What's your best riot story? What's your best? We've been in a we've been at a punk rock show and it's gone past the point. As a fan or as a band? Give me, give me either one. Well, San Jose went to go see. Uh, was it? Um, it might have been the adolescence, and a uh, big riot happened. Cops, tear gas, dogs—the whole thing broke it all up. Um, that was pretty crazy, and then. Um, uh, we played Miami in 93. And this is the first one that's coming to mind anyway. And we were playing the last show of the club, right? And the club owner kept pushing us and pushing us not to play, not to play. And, and the more, because he wanted, it was the last night of the club, so they're trying to sell more booze, basically. Right. They're, bo- they're breaking it out, right? I got to sell every, every, every whiskey bottle I got here because otherwise it's going to the trash or going to you know, in the back of somebody's truck. So, and it's hot as fuck, right? And this club's got no AC, you know I mean? Obviously don't care. And so we're supposed to play 
at you know whatever it was 11 o'clock at night okay and now it's like 1205 and people are getting fucking pissed right to the point where they're starting to smash in the walls and if you're the band and i'm sure the crowd assumes that this is your fault right well not only that but they and they see us up on the stage because there's no backstage and we're just sitting there waiting for the club owner guy to say go ahead and play and finally it's just it's getting i mean now there's people starting to fight you know people because it's too it's too hot it's too humid in there you know what i mean people are drunk oh, fucking miami yeah <laughs> and and Next thing you know, I just turned and I said, we're fucking playing. And I think Matt even said, we've got to fucking play and get the fuck out of here. And literally we get on, we finally start at like 1230 at night and we get off at like 130 in the morning. Cause I remember we were loading out at 3 AM. You know what I mean? And we got to be wherever next fucking town, whatever it was, you know, the next day. So, but, and it got, it got really fucking, they started smashing everything as soon as we, um, we pulled out our gear out. I mean, it was like bedlam. Cops. We were on an episode of Cops um, <laughs> in El Paso, Texas. There was a huge riot after we played. Um, we played a place. I can't, I can't remember what, what town it was in Texas, but it was, a, it, was a, it was a club called Goat's Head Soup. And we had played the night before, and then the owner ended up blowing up the club. We were gonna, we, I remember we were going to leave our gear because we were spending the night in town. And Matt said, you know what, let's just pack it up so we can just head on. And, and the pro said, no, no, you can leave it here and you can just come and get it before you guys leave tomorrow. I'm going to have somebody here. That night he blew up the club because for the insurance money. <laughs> Landlord Lightning? <laughs> Unbelievable. So shit like that's happened over the years, you know. Well, that's great. Uh, I remember I was working stage crew in the Kaiser Arena in Oakland. You were playing yeah. Kaiser Oh, yeah. That's where I saw the Great American Bash on tour. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I used to work. I worked there as like after college. And it was like a rap show. And um, they, they had like listed that it was going to be like Scarface and uh, Too Short and all these people. And just they, it was like one of the promoters. And they never those guys never showed up. And they just had RBL Posse out there do like a set. And then just everybody realized, wait a minute, these guys aren't coming. And they all just started throwing chairs. And it was like the entire place was, or it was like, it was like the Terry Funk uh, uh, public enemy match. And he's, you know, oh, you know, except like you had all these people throwing chairs. I remember just thinking, I was like, oh, I'm going to hang out here. And I remember thinking when it was over, I was like, fuck, man, it's got a lot, a lot easier to pick up all these chairs after they've already been unhooked and thrown. <laughs> it probably made my cleanup cut an hour out of the cleanup of the thing. I got to go home early. It was great. It's like, I need every show to end like this. This is from fucking home. By, <laughs> I'm home by midnight instead of two in the morning. That's funny as fuck. Well, all yeah. Right. Well, Lars, I appreciate you coming on, my friend. This was a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, you know, you so gotta come on, you gotta come on, on our podcast and promote your book, because I think there's a lot of people that would really, and, you know, get, like to get this in their hands. Yeah, man. Anytime. Just let me know. Yeah. Um, and so your podcast for everybody who wants to know the wrestling perspective podcast, I'm assuming that's available anywhere that podcasts are available. Yep. Fight TV on our Twitch, on our YouTube. And, uh, yeah, you can follow our Instagram at, at the wrestling uh, perspective uh, pod. And we got a Twitter. It's, I think it's just WP Pod. Um, um, and yeah, so yeah, come and check. And us you, out. are you guys on tour? You see, you mentioned you're going to you're going to Chicago for Riot Fest. Yeah, I'm leaving on the eighth for Minneapolis, Minnesota. So that's right. the first show. I think it's on the tenth or the ninth, something like that. And you guys are in. I'm assuming that's uh, where where can people see if they decide they want to 
go see Rancid Live and why wouldn't they want to go see Rancid Live? Yeah, I don't know. Come why. back to it. We, we're back in the world, man. We can got to put on a mask, got to get vaccinated, but we can come to some rock shows. And I, yeah, that's right. That's right. So we'll be out for the next three weeks. And I think I get home September the second, and then we got a few weeks off, and then we go back out for another West Coast run. So it's basically <clears throat> Midwest, East Coast this run, and then three weeks off, then West Coast. And now is there a website or uh, somewhere that people can get your tour dates? Go to rancid, rancid.com or follow us on on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram. You know, we're everywhere. We're on everything. All right. Well, thanks a lot, my friend. We'll talk thanks, soon. Buddy. All right, buddy. Just because I dress like this doesn't mean I'm a communist.